Start reading at verse 11. And he, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, that is Jews, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, and this is literally the word seed, I wish that the New American Standard had left it that way because seed can be either singular or plural. When we say a seed, or we could say seed, and you can be talking about a basket of seed, and that's the way it is uh, in the Greek. And so, uh, in this case, it is, I believe, plural, but uh, translated descendants. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God. Now I'm going to stop there because he goes on with the new thought. The thing to get here is that Abraham, verse 16 right at the end, Abraham is the father of us all in the sight of God. There's a parenthetical there, but skip over that parenthetical. It's a very important parenthetical, but Paul says Abraham is the father of us all in the sight of him whom he believed. He's the father of us all in the sight of God. Well, let's pray. (coughs) Father, we're, we're so thankful for the grace that you've extended to us. And Lord, we confess, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And Lord, we pray, thank you for drawing us back repeatedly to yourself. We pray that you'd keep us from any evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Thank you for this encouragement that Dick shared with us of how we are in your hand and uh, you're holding on to us. Lord, uh, we pray that you would uh, quicken us again today, stir up in our hearts as uh, Russell has prayed, stir up in our hearts a hatred for sin and a love for you. And uh, help us, Lord, to give ourselves afresh today to seeking you, to know that we might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Pray for help this morning. Pray for your Holy Spirit. Help us to get outside of ourselves and to be taught by you. 
Open our ears, open my mouth, give us utterance and hearing and understanding. We pray for Your Holy Spirit, a spirit of faith and power and love and of a sound mind to be with us here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Well, we come once again to this amazing fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. So far, we have considered the first 12 verses, and we've seen already that this man Abraham is extremely important in any discussion uh, that we have about justification by faith. Now, why is Abraham so important? Well, because Abraham is much more than just an example from the Old Testament of justification by faith. He's much more than that. I mean, you could look around and find lots of examples of justification by faith. But Abraham is different in that he is actually set forth by God as a pattern of what justification by faith is all about. And so he's very important, and that's why Paul spends this this entire chapter and other chapters in the Bible talking about Abraham. Uh, What this means is that we can learn a lot about a lot of things, and particularly a lot about justification by faith just by looking at the pattern that we have in Abraham. God set him up there particularly so that we could get a glimpse of what all this is about. And we've learned several things already. First of all, we've learned that justification is by faith and not by works. Um, Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The first mention of faith in the Bible, first direct mention. And also we have learned that what happens in justification is that something called righteousness or right standing is imputed to us, reckoned to us, placed on our account, credited to us. And we've learned from the example of Abraham that that crediting of righteousness to us involves our sins not being credited to us. Now all of that we looked at in the first eight verses. And then also from the example of Abraham, we have learned that justification by faith doesn't have anything to do with religious rites and ceremonies, particularly circumcision. Now in our day, baptism or the Lord's Supper. Um, Justification by faith has nothing to do with that, and that's what we looked at in verses 9 through 12, and we finished that up last week. Now that's a good start. I mean, already you've learned a lot by going back and looking at Abraham. Uh, that 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 first mention, direct mention of faith in the Bible, such an amazing verse. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, credited to him, reckoned to him as righteousness, imputed to him. Uh, but there's much more to learn from this pattern of Abraham. <clears throat> and so in verse 13, Paul uh, takes the whole discussion a little further. Now, he's still talking about justification by faith. That's a theme all down through here. But he brings in something else to consider. And what he brings in is this whole subject of promise. Promise. Now, notice it down through these verses. Verse 13. And uh, in my Bible, I mark these things just to see the flow. I mean, if you mark the word father down through this chapter, you'll be amazed. 
And if you put a box around the word promise down through here, you'll be amazed. Uh, there's themes that are coming up again and again. But notice verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his seed. Verse 14, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Verse 16, uh, for this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the, the promise may be certain to all the descendants. And then uh, um, he talks about promise actually in these other verses without using the word. But then verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. And verse 21, but being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. When God made a covenant with Abraham, now you remember there's different big covenants in the Bible. There was a covenant with Noah. There's a covenant with Moses or Mosaic covenant. There's a covenant with Abraham. When God made that covenant with Abraham, that covenant was just a bunch of promises is what it was. It was made up of a bunch of promises. That's the nature of the covenant that Abraham was under. Now, contrast God giving the law to Moses and to the children of Israel. You remember on Mount Sinai, God gave him the Ten Commandments and all those other commandments. Now, over 600 commandments. God gave them all those commandments and He says, do this and you'll live. But cursed is the man who does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Now that's totally different. You see, do this and you'll live with this big list of commandments and even tablets of stone. That's totally different than what happened with Abraham. What happened with Abraham? Well, God just made a promise. Now this is an amazing thing. He took him out, and you know, some of these clear nights, you can get a feel, except we're in town where you've got a lot more light. But out in the country, where there, and if you can get those yard lights shut off and everything on a dark night like it would have been for Abraham, and you look up into the sky, God says, look up into the sky, and he sees it, you know, there's the Milky Way, I mean, all these stars. And he says, uh, see if you can count those. So shall your seed be. See, that's just a flat-out promise. He doesn't say, now here's Ten Commandments, keep that. If you do that, you'll live and so on. He just says, look at that. That's what it's going to be like. You're going to have a vast multitude of descendants. And he just promised him that. It's a word of promise. <clears throat> now this whole concept of promise then is really important. And Paul spends a, a, another, well, he spends more than one chapter on it over in Galatians. And there's more in Romans as well. But I think it would be good for us just to refresh ourselves a little bit by looking at Galatians chapter 3. And just seeing again the mention of this word, and we won't read the entire section, but we'll start at verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, this is Galatians 3, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, verse 16 now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. 
He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. We heard that phrase in Romans, didn't we? Nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. You see how much this comes up? Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, ultimately, the promise, you know, it was to the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. When God made, He says, I'm making a promise to you and your seed, the big promise was to Christ. But then all who are in Christ also get in on that. And Abraham was one of them that got in on it because he got he was in Christ. But notice here, just the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And then verse 21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on law. But the Scripture shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. And then, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to promise. Alright? So, this this is not all of it, but this is just a little more feel. So back to Romans 4. What does all this information about promise have to do with justification by faith? Well, it has a lot to do with it. Because if salvation is by promise, works cannot have anything to do with it. If it's by promise, merit can't have anything to do with it. It has to be by faith if salvation is by promise. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's going all different ways to prove justification by faith. One of the ways is, it's just that's what the Bible said, that people were justified by faith all through the Old Testament. On top of that, it was prior to circumcision. That couldn't have anything to do with it. On top of that, it has to do with promise. And so, works and merit cannot have anything to do with it. Now, that's his argument, and he's going to show us why that's the case in verses 13 through 16. So let's look at these again in Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there's no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, now again, I think the New American Standard misses it because the word therefore. Therefore, and of course for this reason is fine, but you miss the for, 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 therefore. Therefore, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace 
in order that the promise may be certain to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So you notice the four and the four and the four and the therefore. <clears throat> now, I was going over this last night with Mona before we fell asleep, and she said, now what are those verses again you're going to be looking at tomorrow? And I went through the verses. Partly it was because it was very late. I don't know, about, about 1 o'clock or so. But anyway, I said, you know, <clears throat> the promise that he, to Abraham and to his seed that he should be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Went over those verses. It's just like a jumble of words, isn't it, if you're not following. And you know, Paul wrote this book to people, some of the people that it was written to were illiterate. They couldn't even read. So take courage. <laughs> no. <laughs> However, he did not write it to somebody that can glance at it and understand it. You've got to, you've got to, I mean, it's the glory of God to hide a matter. It's the glory of kings and princes to search out a matter. And we've got a great privilege uh, in searching out, coming to God and saying, Lord, teach me what this means. And sometimes it means you're going to have to memorize it. You're going to have to think about it a lot. And as you do, the riches begin to unfold. I mean, little words like the word under even. But back in chapter 3, we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they're all under sin. Well, why didn't he say they've all sinned? No, he says they're all under sin. It has a meaning. Well, What's Paul saying here? <clears throat> Let me just try to go through it, kind of a paraphrase, and we'll see if, if it becomes clearer. He says in verse 13, <clears throat> we know that the promise to Abraham couldn't have been based on keeping the law. How do we know that? Well, because promise and law are two opposite things. You get into law, you nullify promise. Verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Now why? Why, he says, I know that since this was based on promise, works can't have anything to do with it. How do I know that? Well, because works, I mean law and works are the exact opposite of promise. Why are they the opposite? Why does, why does law nullify faith? And why does law nullify promise? Well, because the law works wrath. You start out trying to keep the law, you're going to end up under the curse. And there's no way in the world you're going to be an inheritor of anything. The law works wrath. Now he says, if you are under the law trying to keep the law, if law has anything to do with it, you're going to be under the wrath of God. You're not going to get any promises. But he says, if you're talking about a realm over here where there's no law at all, where there's no requirement, then there's no possibility of violation. Where no law is, neither is there transgression. Now he says, when God gave this promise to Abraham, the law was still 430 years down the road. It was just a promise. It didn't have anything to do with man meeting certain requirements. It had to do with God promising something graciously. Now, he says, that's why God had to set it up the way He did. He set it up by faith so that it could be totally by grace so that the promise might be certain. You see, that's the flow down through here. That's all He's saying. 
So Paul proves from the very concept of promise that salvation has to be by faith, otherwise the whole thing would have fallen apart, it would have failed. Now let's just go back and say it a different way. Way back 4,000 years ago, there was this idolater living in Ur of the Chaldees. And by the way, it was a real civilization. They could do cube roots in Ur of the Chaldees at that time, 4,000 years ago. You know, it wasn't some stick somewhere. It was, it was the glory of civilization, the world, you know, and all of its attraction. Every generation is modern, you see. They're the most modern thing. They had everything up to date. <laughs> so it, was, it was the most modern place there was. And God, the God of glory, appeared to this idolater named Abraham and revealed himself to him and called him out. And he made a covenant with him. Now, how does an idolater merit God appearing to him? Well, he doesn't merit it. And how does he merit having a covenant made with him? He doesn't. God just graciously chose this guy and made a covenant with him. And the covenant that he made with him was a bunch of promises, gracious things that he was going to do for him. Totally gracious promises. Now, if those promises had been in any way conditioned on man or what man would or wouldn't do, they would have all failed. None of them would have come to pass. But because they have nothing to do with our performance, but totally with God's gracious promise, they will all certainly be fulfilled. Now notice what he says here in verse 16. He says, For this reason it's by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be possible to all the seed. doesn't say that. <laughs> that the promise may be certain. To all the seed, every single one, the promise is going to be certain to all the seed. It will certainly be fulfilled. Now think of one of the promises God made, that one that we talked about. He says, Abraham, look at the sky. If you're able to count that, he said, so shall your seed be, so shall your descendants be. So God basically promised him, he says, you're going to have, now this was true physically, that he had a multitude of physical descendants, but more than that, it was true spiritually. He says, you're going to have a multitude of spiritual descendants that no man can number. And it was made as a promise. In other words, God's saying, I am going to save a multitude of people. I'm going to do that. It's a promise. If, if that had anything to do with man meeting certain conditions, nobody would have ever been saved and the promise would have failed. You see? And so, the fact is, it doesn't hinge on man's performance. It hinges on God's gracious promise. Therefore, it will come to pass and there will be a multitude of saved people. Now, let me read it to you. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If you're a Christian today, the reason that you're a Christian is that promise that God made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. That's the reason that you're a Christian. You are a child of promise. Now let me just read it to you. Don't turn to this, but let me just read it to you. A little later in Romans, Paul says this. He says, The children of the flesh, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, physical Jews, but the children of the promise are regarded as seed. For this is a word of promise. Now he gives a quote from the Old Testament. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That's an example of a word of promise. What did God say? Now, Abraham, you do this, this, and this. Keep these commandments. Do all that. Walk in all that. Merit this. And I'll give you a son next year. He didn't say that. He said, at this time, will I come, Sarah's going to have a, a son. That's a, Paul says, for this is a word of promise. All right? In other words, people that are Christians, the real seed, are born of a supernatural birth as a result, not of man, but of God's gracious promise. Now, we won't go on with that right now, but let me just read you something else from Galatians. He says, The son by the bondwoman are born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This contains an allegory. These two women, that is Sarah and Hagar, are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She's Hagar. But Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. Now listen to what he says. You, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Just like Isaac was. your children. The way you were born, you were born supernaturally by divine intervention because of a promise God made. That's what he's talking about. He says, at that, as at that time he was born according to the flesh... Ishmael persecuted him who was born according to, you you think he'd say according to the promise. No, he says born according to the Spirit. So it is now. So to be born according to the promise is to be born according to the Spirit. Supernaturally born in the spiritual realm. Now these are wonderful things. Every Christian who has ever been, has been born according to promise, supernaturally, in spite of all impossibilities. Think of the case of Isaac. See, his mother was barren. There's no way she's going to have a child. And God gives a word of promise. He's going to supernaturally give her a child. Just a promise. That's the way it is that every Christian is born. There's no way in the world that the church is able to beget another Christian. I mean, try it. You know, just try talking somebody into becoming a Christian. This is supernatural. You can talk people into praying a prayer. You can talk them into coming forward. You use all the psychological manipulation. You can get results. But you can't get real children born of the Spirit. You can get a bunch of children born of the flesh. But 
when you start talking about being born of the Spirit, it was not the idea that Abraham and Sarah made up their minds, you know, that they're going to try a little harder. That's just not going to happen when you're 100 years old. It's just God just did it supernaturally. That's what we've got to ask the Lord to do in birthing new children into the kingdom of heaven. It's supernatural birth, every one of them. Well, a couple of things to notice here. First of all, Paul views these promises that were made to Abraham 4,000 years ago as still being in effect. They haven't been done away with. Now, think about this. Think about the, the covenant God made with Noah. That was even farther back. We don't know how far back that went. But the covenant that God made with Noah is still in effect. Every time we see a rainbow, we're being reminded God promised. Now, He promised that He will not destroy the whole world again like He did in the flood. That's a live promise. It's still in effect for us. It hasn't been abolished in the least. And those promises that God made to Abraham and to His seed are still live promises. There's, the current is still on in those promises. Now that's quite a thought, isn't it? Secondly, those promises have a much deeper meaning than what the Jews thought that they meant. For example, God promised Abraham that he would have a multitude of children. And the Jews thought that meant a multitude of physical children. And it did mean that. That was a partial fulfillment. There was, a lev- there was one level in which the fulfillment was natural. God gave him the land of Canaan. God gave him these children and so on. But Paul tells us right here in verse 11 that Abraham is the father of all who believe. So he's already told us that when God promised Abraham a vast multitude of children, he was talking ultimately about spiritual children, believers, all believers. So these promises had a much deeper meaning than what the Jews thought they had. Believers are the real children of Abraham. That means that if you're a believer, those promises that God made to Abraham and to his seed are for you. Because you're a believer. And they're still live promises now. So it it is worthwhile to go back and find out what Abraham, what God promised to Abraham and to his seed. Because you're one of his seed if you're a Christian. It's, it's worth finding out. Now, what did God promise Abraham and his children? Well, Paul tells us one of the things that he promised us in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed, that's us, that he would be heir of the world. That's one of the things, incidentally, God promised to Abraham and to his seed. He promised to everybody that's a child of Abraham, you're going to inherit the entire world. Now, you talk about wealth. It's one thing, you know, your father's a millionaire, and he, when he dies, you, you inherit, you know, a million dollars. Well, that's not so much anymore. But you inherit a million dollars. But what about saying you can have the whole world? 
You have everything. You can inherit the entire earth, the entire world. Isn't that what Jesus said? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the whole earth. They'll inherit the earth. Right now, we live as strangers in the land of promise that will one day belong to us. This, is, this ought to amaze us. I mean, men of faith right now are despised and spit upon and condemned. And they're living as strangers and aliens in the land of promise. Just that's what Abraham did. You know, he was a sojourner in the land that he was going to get. And he's kicked from one place to another. This is his land. That's what's happening now to believers. Now let me give you <clears throat> let me give you a verse some verses out of Hebrews. Hebrews eleven it says concerning the men of faith, others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. There are some heirs of the world this morning that are being kicked and beaten right now. Mockings, scourgings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Isn't that amazing? That those same people will one day inherit the entire world. That's what's going to happen. God says that, Genesis 17, 8. I will give to you, he's talking to Abraham, and to your seed after you. That's talking to believers. I'll give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings for an everlasting possession. So that's a promise to believers. Notice the word inheritance or heirs. In verse 13, he says, The promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be the heir of the world. It means inherit. And I read that verse in Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. So there's an inheritance waiting for the heirs. If you belong to Christ. If you're a Christian, you're going to inherit everything that was promised to Abraham's seed. And ultimately, that seed was Christ. We saw that back in Galatians 3. And Christ is going to inherit a lot more than just this earth. He's going to inherit the entire created order, the entire universe, the whole new heavens and new earth. He's going to inherit everything. And so, in Christ, as what he says in chapter 8, joint heirs with Christ... We're not only going to inherit this whole world, but we're going to inherit everything there is. The entire created order. Now you talk about wealth. I mean riches. I mean, you think inheriting the entire world, what's that? 
when when the universe, I mean, when the Earth is just this tiny little speck, you know, if you if you draw the Earth here, this little speck, and you draw the Sun here like a golf ball or something, and put them nine inches apart, every inch is a million, a ten million. Let's see, what is it? Ninety-three million. Every inch would be ten million miles if they're nine inches apart. Am I saying something wrong? Okay. Anyway, nine inches apart. The closest star would be 40 miles away. And that, I mean, that is just, that, that's the nearest neighbors in our galaxy. And Dick or somebody talked about, the, I think it was Dick talking about the local cluster of galaxies. And he says, He's going to inherit everything, and we are joint heirs with Christ. You say, this is just—it's—it's it's unbelievable what it is to be a fellow heir, to be considered part of Abraham's seed. That's just unbelievable. But that's nothing compared to the fact of having God. I mean, He's the one that spoke all that into existence effortlessly. And the promise, before that verse that I read in Genesis 17, 8, the promise right before that, Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and, and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. And I'll give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's infinitely greater than the first half of the verse. God will actually be our God. So the blessedness of having God as your God and knowing Him and knowing that your sins are forgiven and knowing that He's accepted you as His child and that He has taken you in as a joint heir with His Son. Uh, these are things that are... Uh, beyond our imagination and what it means to be a partaker of these promises. One more verse as we close here. This is in Hebrews 11. Concerning Abraham, in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. That's what we're doing. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Now look at verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was not just looking for this physical land of Canaan. I mean, even in the Old Testament, they had a higher view than that. You think he was going to be satisfied with the land of Canaan? He had tasted a little bit of knowing God. He was looking for the city that has foundations. It's never changing. And down here in verse 13, 
All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, not just in the land of Canaan, but on the whole earth, strangers and exiles. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And if indeed they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. Well, Lord willing, next time we'll go on and look some more at these promises that were made to Abraham. And um, more of what's involved in salvation by grace through faith. Our annual business meeting. Um,